giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody. This is the giant robot smashing into other giant robots podcast. It is Friday, December 21st. However, you are hearing this in the future, which means I'm broadcasting to you from the past. If you're hearing this, it is after New Year's. Uh, my name is Ben Ornstein, and I'm here today with two guests. We have Gordon Fontenot. Hey, Gordon. How are you doing? Good. And Matt Mongeau. Hi, Matt. Hello. Hello. Uh, Gordon and Matt are both uh, fellow ThoughtBotters. Um, they are currently uh, the backbone of the Boston iOS development team, and that's what we're talking about today, iOS stuff, right? I hope so. Yeah. I'm in the wrong place. If you're <laughs> yeah, otherwise it's going to be a terrible podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Matt, I'll start with you, actually. Uh, so you, until recently, have been doing pretty much exclusively Ruby development, right? That's correct. Okay. And so now you've moved over to the iOS world a bit? A little bit. Okay, so so you're you're newish to it, right? Correct. Okay, so as a as a newish iOS guy who's come from a Ruby background, are there things from the Ruby world that you notice as lacking, or that that you just miss as you're working? Um, I think the community in Ruby Motion isn't as big as the Ruby community. I, I mean, it's currently like segregated between the people who are doing Objective C and the people who are doing Ruby Motion, and so mm. I really miss the tight knit community. Gotcha. So so you're using Ruby Motion then. That's correct. So can you actually quickly lay out the difference between that and just pure iOS, just in case people aren't aware? Sure. So, so RubyMotion is a runtime built on top of LLVM, and uh, it compiles to the same thing that Objective-C compiles to, to run on the iPhone. And what this allows you to do is write Ruby code instead of Objective-C, and uh, they give you basically a small framework to work with to work and build iOS applications. Got it. And how do you like it? I actually like it quite a bit. I was a little bit skeptical going into it, but uh, now that I've used it, I like it a lot. Hmm. Gordon, have you done much Ruby Motion stuff? Not as much as Goose, but I've done um, a few. I spent a few weeks. Was I not supposed to call Goose? Well, no, I was just going to say Goose. Goose, by the way, is Matt Manjo's <laughs> nickname. So, and that was to resolve a name collision we had actually in Campfire years. Ago. Well, is it years ago now? I guess. Yeah, years ago. It's like when I first started working here. There was another Matt. Or actually, no, that's not true. There still is other Matt. There is. There is so, still. So we've Matt. had multiple Matts, and so he needed a nickname, and somehow it became Goose. I mean, do we want the story? No, I don't think we want the story. Okay, <laughs> but it's Goose. Sorry, <laughs> so, so Gordon. So you're you're more of a traditional Objective C guy, then, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, you've looked at Ruby Motion. Yeah, I've played around with it a bit. Mm-hmm. Initial impressions coming from the other direction. Coming from the other direction, um, I don't like it as much. I would still prefer to write stuff in Objective-C really? over Ruby Motion. Why is that? Um, I find myself fighting with the framework more. I find myself uh, having to... I still have to look up all the stuff in Objective-C anyway, so I spend a lot of time converting, either mentally converting it or physically you know, um, changing the syntax from Objective-C syntax to Ruby syntax. It's... Hmm. it's um, it's just another step that I have to go through when I'm when I'm building. Interesting. Do you feel the same way about that? Uh, I did a little bit. They recently converted all of the Apple Docs from Objective C into Ruby Motion, so they have their own like set of documents that makes it easier to to do the conversions. But you still run into the problem that if you're looking for examples or tutorials for like specific things in the iOS framework that you want to do, you sometimes have to do that conversion. But I don't really have a problem doing the conversion. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't have a problem doing it. It's more that I, I could just write it in Objective-C first and not have to even think about it. 
Mm. But that might just be a, a function of your familiarity right. with the right. with that language. Right. Did do you see that there's some syntactical benefits or I mean? Oh yeah, yeah, huge, especially with some of the um, uh, some of the wrappers that they have out there. Like Bubble Wrap makes the HTTP, HTTP stuff just awesome. Mm. Um, really reduces a lot of the boilerplate code that you have to use in Objective C. Uh, it makes it a lot simpler. Uh, and doing stuff like using Ruby blocks sometimes are easier than Objective-C blocks, especially remembering the syntax <laughs> for Objective-C blocks is just awful. So <laughs> so it, it sounds like, I mean, and Matt, would you agree that, that you want to, you need to know the underlying uh, Objective-C frameworks, I guess, to be able to use RubyMotion effectively? Yeah, 100%. You need to know the iOS SDK. iOS, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So knowing the SDK is critical. You, you really can't get around without it because they're, they're not abstracting that, those portions out. It's just a Ruby interface on top of the iOS SDK. Okay. So you need to know the classes. You need to know the methods. You actually have to know uh, how the event system kind of works in the application itself. So handling delegations um, and the whole like viewed it load type thing, all of that's still in place. And you, you have to understand how that works in order to be able to work in Ruby motion. Mm. So I'm at, I can't imagine I'm the first person to draw this parallel, but it sounds a little bit like the CoffeeScript versus JavaScript world. I think so. Yeah, I would agree because CoffeeScript is just a syntax on top of JavaScript. I feel like RubyMotion is just another syntax on top of the iOS SDK. Mm-hmm. Makes it a little nicer to work with, but you still want to know what's going on at the core. Yeah, you have to. Hmm. So um, one thing that is... Um almost tantamount to religion around here, I guess, is uh, test-driven development and just testing in general as a very much a philosophy that we think is really important. Uh, is that as, are people as passionate in the, uh, the iOS world about testing? No. <laughs> um, no, I mean, uh, there, there are definitely people out there pushing for testing in iOS. Um, and I'm really trying to get more into it because I don't have a big testing background. So doing a lot of research into testing frameworks that are out there, but some of this, some of the ways that the, the front, the iOS framework was built don't lend themselves well to testing. You don't have a lot of, um, uh, access to, let's see how to say this stuff like digging through the view hierarchy, which you would not do in production code ever. You just don't need to do it. Um, in testing frameworks, sometimes you would need to do that, and mm. so that code just gets really ugly really fast. I think I think one of the other problems that you have too is managing state on the simulator. So almost all right. the tests run inside of the simulator, but you don't have control over uh, what's being stored in core data, like we do in Rails. In Rails, it's easy to say, okay, you know, database cleaner is going to reset all that stuff. But when you're dealing with a simulator, the simulator doesn't give you an interface for doing that. So you're uh. kind of uh, imprisoned by what they give you and that you also have that same problem interesting so when so when code is running in the simulator do you not have sort of like a backdoor into it uh what do you mean by a backdoor like uh well i mean like i can drop into a debugger like from a rails request and like get at anything that's going on really so you can set breakpoints and stuff and debug that way that's typically the way you do it but i don't think i mean none of that stuff would be accessible to you for the testing side of things right and ruby motion also provides you with a console that you can use while your application is running so you can kind of fiddle with things but i think you run into the same problem that gordon was describing earlier is that i have a hard time you're supposed to be able to select the view that you want to interact with and with complex views sometimes it just won't give you the element you're trying to get to and you still end up having to navigate that large view hierarchy like 
I'm at the table view and I need to get to the, the section and then I need to get the cell inside of the section and the text label inside of that and then I need to get the, the text for that in order to be able to change it. And it, it's really not as easy as I was, I was hoping it would be mm, right. for the console thing. Right. Yeah, the REPL doesn't, in RubyMotion, the REPL is really nice, but also is, can be super complicated to use. Um, it's not as easy as just changing context into an object. And most of the times, especially with like command clicking around in the um, simulator in order to change your context, a lot of times I want to change to the controller object, so the actual view controller object, because that's where so much of the event-driven stuff happens in iOS is in the view controllers. And you can't, that's like the one thing you can't command click or unless you found a way to do it. No, it's like the one thing you can't command click into. Yeah. Views don't know about their controller. Right. Um, as far as I can tell. So you actually have to work the opposite way down. You have to, you have to start with a window object and get the visible controller in order to be able to know that. And and that's not always what you want either. It's complicated when you have in-depth applications where maybe one more, more than one controller is kind of active. Huh. So, so Matt, you came from this uh, very TDD-heavy world into this. Do you do you miss the confidence of having tests like that? I I did initially. Yeah, I, I was really upset because I was hoping that RubyMotion was going to provide that gap. Like, oh, this is just going to be working on a Rails application, and really, it's not RubyMotion's fault. Like, you're going to run into these exact same problems in in the Objective C world. Right. It's it's kind of easy to do unit tests. It's kind of hard to do anything else. Mm. Um, RubyMotion provides its own testing framework uh, that's kind of built on top of Bacon with a few things that are added in. And it makes it so you can do functional tests, and it's functional tests across one controller. And so for a while, I was trying to work with those, but what I found is there isn't a lot you can actually test at that point um, because most of application development on iOS, which is kind of different from, from a Rails application, is the interaction across things. I don't want to know what one controller is going to do. I want to know what it's doing in between, you know, the next controller that it's going to talk to. And mm. you can't do that. Hmm. So do you, are, do you find yourself less aggressive about refactoring because you don't have good test coverage? I would say no, because I tend to refactor as part of my process, regardless of tests. Like, I always look at my code afterwards. And, and when we were doing it, we were still doing pull requests so other people were looking at the code. So we still had facilities in place that kind of pushed us forward into refactoring instead of just letting bad code sit there. But I would probably say that the end result would have, is a lot different than if you had tests because when you write tests, you tend to notice things that mm-hmm. lead to bad code. Yeah, and that's, and that's one of my arguments for tests is that I think they exert sort of positive design pressure on the code. And so I think, are, are you discovering that the code you write is not quite as modular, not quite as easy to break apart? Yeah, I would say that um, what I felt after the last few projects I worked on is that the code quality that I produce in RubyMotion is not the same as the code quality that I produce in a Rails application. Hmm. I wouldn't say it's bad, but it's still not anywhere near uh, how I feel about my code when I'm done with a Rails application. Do you think that goes beyond just your relative inexperience with... I think so. I think there's like a couple things at play here. One's not being able to test. Two is that I'm still forced into the iOS SDK. And there's a lot of things in there that just don't lend themselves to the way that we we write Rails applications. Mm. And um, becoming more familiar with the SDK and what I'm able and to do and not do would probably help. So it's still going to take more time. But I think the community kind of needs to push this a little bit more. Mm. I think we need more 
individuals in the Ruby community really wanting testing out of it. I, I've talked to people who are currently doing Ruby Motion, and they their opinion is there's no point in testing, mm. uh, which I feel is such an awkward statement coming from like we test all the time, right? But to hear people saying, "Well, what am I going to test?" and and they're almost right. Like there isn't really much that you can test. You're still able to, but you're not going to get a lot of benefit out of a complex application. Like testing the simple applications that they write tutorials online for, mm. sure. And it looks great until you try to do something with it. And it, it's really holding it back, I feel. Interesting. I, I wonder if we'll see more... I wonder if RubyMotion will encourage more Rubyists to enter this world and sort of bring with them that philosophy of, you know, testing is really worth the time. That's what I'm hoping. Uh, so... Gordon, was was Objective C the first language that you picked up? Uh, I messed around with Python and Ruby, I think, a little bit before, um, but not very serious. So Objective C is probably the first language that I really kind of got into. Interesting. How did you find it as a first language to learn? Really complex. <laughs> uh, yeah, really complex. Having to deal with memory management and stuff because it was back before Arc was around and mm-hmm. Xcode three, which was kind of brutal. Um, not that Xcode four is like super awesome, but yeah, having to deal with memory management, learning what pointers were and, you know, C structs and all this stuff just kind of, um, just coming from blank slate was, yeah, was complex, but it's interesting. I've, I've heard people make the argument that I actually, and I think even Joel Spolsky has, mm-hmm. uh, made this argument that it's good to learn a language, your first language, how it be low level yeah. to actually understand memory management and pointers and things like that, because it's sort of close to what's really happening at the hardware level. Yeah. It gives you a better picture of what's going on. So I would understand that the, I understand that argument. I think there, there might be some merit to that. And I also understand the counter argument, which is like, you're just trying to get your head around this programming thing. Right. And like right. St- who, who wants to worry about like freeing memory and things like that in the right. beginning? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, having a little bit, having knowledge of some of the more fundamental things, just even just like variables, loops, that kind of stuff was took some of the pressure off learning objective C. Cause I could just focus on the lower level concepts of memory management and pointers and stuff like that i I could see it being worth a programmer knowing a low-level language Mm -hmm. i don't know that i would recommend people start with something like that like as a first language when you're still just trying to yeah i I don't figure out what's going on yeah Yeah, i wouldn't agree with that i think it's important once you do have the understanding to like try those things out I, i felt like as a developer i learned more trying to write my own computer simulators than i did doing anything else like mm. understanding just the low down oh this is actually how a computer works that's why the programming languages have to do these particular things mm-hmm. and and just having a firm understanding of like memory management is fantastic but knowing that right off the bat is kind of difficult unless you're a you know a grad student it's probably going to be not in your realm of things to sit down and study all day long for that particular thing mm-hmm. i mean i think we all come from backgrounds where we we had jobs or things that we were doing while we were learning how to program and so, you know, quick and easy wins were probably like the easiest way for us to to get into it. Right. Totally. I was talking uh, on a, a previous podcast with uh, DHH and he was saying, or we were, we were talking about how it's interesting that programming is kind of unique in that you have a lot of people teaching themselves. There's a lot of auto, autodidacts in the programming world, as opposed to like apprenticing from someone who knows the way and can show you. So I think I think we have to think extra hard about recommendations we give to new people because a lot of the times they're struggling on their own and they, they barely have any feedback from people um so let's not bog them down with nitty-gritty maybe in the beginning right. yeah and and maybe that's that's kind of where ruby motion could fit in right mm. because you don't have to learn a lot of the complexities now uh, objective c recently got a modification when they moved over to LLDB, 
and, and the recent version of uh, Xcode where the memory is managed for you. They introduced right. the automatic reference counting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was like new in the past couple years. Was it last year or two this years? year? Two I years? Think, okay, two so years. it's like it's relatively new to the language, and it, it took away that. And I think it made Objective C more accessible to people. Mm. But I think Ruby Motion makes it even more accessible to people to start making iOS applications. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get up and rolling in pretty much no time at all. I, I think that's one of the things that I found was fantastic about Ruby Motion is Xcode. I'd always have problems like trying to get the application to run on my phone right, right off the well, bat. Yeah, I mean, you still have to deal with that in Ruby Motion. I don't think Ruby Motion doesn't solve like code signing errors. And stuff yeah, like but it, it actually has like a lot of good choices right at the bat. I was surprised that when I installed Ruby Motion and I ran Rake Device, like it popped up on my mm-hmm. phone immediately. I think I was entirely surprised that that happened, that I didn't have to go through and check the provisioning profiles and, and everything else to get up and going. Um, I was kind of impressed with that. I wasn't expecting mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And so I think as someone who's just coming to the language for the first time, running something simple, typing rake device and seeing it on their phone would be fantastic uh, for the learning process. Mm-hmm. So Matt, you're sort of new to this. Any recommendations for other aspiring iOS developers, like how to, a good way to get started and good resources, things like that? So it really depends. If they're, if they're coming from a Ruby background, I would suggest just becoming familiar with the iOS SDK. There's a, there's a few RubyMotion tutorials. I think there's rubymotion-tutorial.com, uh, which goes over a lot of the basics to at least get in there. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm going to say that in order to learn it, you have to do the same thing that I would say you'd learn anything with, and that's to come up with something you're actually interested in mm-hmm. and just do it. So come up with something that you want to see on your phone and just start working towards it, and then use the, the tools. I think the... Um, the Apple Docs were fantastic. The mm. fact that they've been converted over into RubyMotion makes them even better. By Apple or by RubyMotion people? By RubyMotion. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Or well, they they so they use a custom Yard Doc that converts the Apple documentation oh, over to RubyMotion. Cool. Because the languages are just a different syntax, so they're right. able to actually convert them over. And um, so you're still reading the same documentation; it's just written for RubyMotion. Mm, nice. But really getting into those docs and exploring the objects, I think good starts are like UI View Controller. Just mm-hmm. looking at the interface for that, um, and UI View, you're going to be interacting with those a lot. And there's a lot of guides that talk about how the system is supposed to operate. Like when View did load gets called, when View did appear gets called. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to learn the the way. Uh, the event driven stuff happens on iOS, but once you, it's not, it's honestly not a complex. Once you get your head around the order in which things are called and the idea of like symmetry. So if you're doing something in view, did load, you probably want to undo it in view, did unload that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Once you get your head around that, it's not, that part isn't super complex. So then it's just the, you know, allocating objects and is a little different and stuff like that. Mm. Any particular books or things you guys like like that? Screencasts or? Um, I know that Pragmatic Programmers just came out with a Ruby Motion book that mm. I haven't read yet, but it's by a guy, Clay Alsop, whose last name I'm probably butchering, but he wrote a bunch of um, Ruby Motion libraries uh, that are pretty good. Um, and then iOS in general, maybe not non Ruby motion. Yeah, there's a, I, I just finished reading a really good getting back to testing stuff, trying to get more into testing. Um, uh, Graham Lee wrote a book on iOS test driven development. That was like really, really good and had some, um, really good ideas in it in terms of ways to make testing objective C stuff easier by using categories to create, uh, to access what should be private 
stuff publicly just for the testing bundles and that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, that was really good. And then I just read uh, a book called All the Sea You Need to Know, which was awesome. That mm. thing was great because I'm not coming from a C background. It's written for iOS developers to better understand some of the stuff like structs and pointers and some of the memory stuff that's happening at the C level. Cool. Really great. Uh, so, by the way, links to all these things that we're discussing will show up in our show notes, which is our you can find at thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 29. That's a little PSA for everybody. <laughs> the more you know. Uh, so, do you guys have any favorite iOS apps that you think uh, are really good examples of good design or good interaction, things like that? Um, I love the uh, um, Fantastical iOS app. So it's like a calendar replacement, and okay. it's just done. It's just really, really slick. Um, it's got a really cool interface to it, and it's just not super the, solid. Not the standard built-in calendar thing. No, well, I don't mind the now that the iPhone five is out and the month view isn't a complete joke because you have enough space to actually see stuff. Mm. I don't mind the 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 built-in iOS calendaring app, but Fantastical is just really, really awesome, really slick app. Cool, it's really well done. Anything else? So. I don't know if I have anything to add. I find that I am probably the most ironic iOS developer in the <laughs> fact that I don't actually like iOS applications. <laughs> I, I think that actually makes me a better iOS developer because I want iOS applications to be different than what's out there. You have an iPhone, though? I, yeah. I have one, yeah, an iPhone 5. But and, you, um, you don't like the apps? I have, like, no apps installed on it. I have all the stock apps. Um, the only thing I really added was Google Maps, and that is probably my favorite app. <laughs> <laughs> wow, gotcha. So, so where do you look to for your design inspiration then? What do you like if you don't like iOS apps? I look to my designers for design inspiration. Sure. Um, so like the last project we worked on, right, we had a designer who was actually and building it. And interesting, I think he got his, uh, his ideas a lot from, we were building a sports-related app. Uh-huh. Um, he got a lot of his ideas from sports cards, like looking at the colors that they used hmm. in the printing and things like that for, for their inspiration. And most of the time I just had to kind of shoot down some of his ideas because I'm like, this is not going to translate well onto the iPhone. Uh, having custom fonts and you know different styles of text is really difficult. But uh, but yeah, I mean I I haven't actually designed an application without having a designer. I think Gordon yeah, has, but I, I have. haven't. Yeah, it didn't end well. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, it's really easy to make simple apps that don't require a lot of design. Yeah, the stock the stock iPhone widgets UI button just like unskinned user interface elements are super dated at this point, but mm. also really easy to kind of drop in. So um, it's, it doesn't take like, if you want to make an app that just looks like a typical iPhone app, you don't need much design stuff at all. Cause mm-hmm. it's all, you just look at what other apps are doing and you just, all those things are standard classes that you can just drop in. And, Got it. So you're going to, you're going to lose some stuff in terms of individuality, but you'll, yeah, sure. you'll win in terms of familiarity. Sure. And now, and now that, um, Apple just the they just introduced this UI appearance um, frame uh, API, which is just kind of awesome. So you can take a completely unskinned app and then with a couple lines, just change the default appearance for stuff like buttons, navigation bars, any any stock um, class, and even any sub custom subclass. You can just change the the look and feel for that app wide with just a few lines. Which nice, is really nice. It's like CSS for your iOS. Kind of, yeah. Kinda. We used it on the last application, too, and it was really useful. Yeah. Hmm. So how annoying is the, uh, the the delayed release cycle, not being able to just push to production and be done with it? Um, <laughs> I, 
I mean, it's annoying, but I, I've been I've been thinking more and more that it's kind of, and I've been kind of seeing some people I follow on Twitter saying the same thing. That it's actually kind of freeing to be able to just you have a, a built-in delay between your done working and the actual release. So if like you're releasing a 1.0, there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen after, even if it's um, you know an influx of support and and bug fixes and that kind of stuff. So having kind of a built-in one-week vacation from all that, so you're like, you're done coding, you hit submit, and then you kind of hang... There's literally nothing you can do for the next week, so relax, and then once it actually hits, you kind of have time to... You're rested, and you can you can keep up with all that stuff. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's not it's not honestly a huge deal in practice. I don't think. I think that the longer review times, or sometimes like the the um, vague reasons for rejections, are much worse than than the actual delay in getting it out. Hmm. Have you experienced any of this? I haven't personally. No, but I don't know. If- I haven't either. In fact, I've I've mostly been in situations where they were doing internal deploys of uh, iOS applications, which meant they they didn't go through that process. I think the last app that I did hasn't yet gone through that process because there's still some more things that wanted to be added to it. But yeah, most of the apps that I've written have been for internal deployment. Hmm. Um, So is there any equivalent to something like RubyGems for like code reuse on the iOS side? Yeah, so there's this thing called CocoaPods. And CocoaPods basically wrap up Objective-C with an interface. You actually install the interface through RubyGems, which is kind of, yeah, <laughs> kind, of kind of meta. Take that, iOS. Yeah. Um, so, and then you can just install the pods, and those download the libraries. I think they're in the, the static form for the libraries. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, so they just get added into your application. And what's nice about it is if you're committing up to source control and everything, you, you don't actually have that entire library in your application, which... Right. Fixes and, the old yeah. way about it. Because in the old in the old days, whenever you added a library to your application, you'd have to include all the files or statically compile it and Or use git submodules and Yeah. And so this makes it more portable. I, I think it solves all the same problems that RubyGems solved, where um, you know, especially in RubyMotion, you can add a gem file. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you can actually list certain gems in there and then in your configuration you tell it which pods it has. And you can hand that off to another developer, and they can pretty much run bundle, and they're they're good to go, which is right. kind of nice. You, mm. you didn't have the ability to do that before, unless you were including all of the libraries in in your application code. Mm. Right. You must still have to eventually include them when you push a release, right? Like through the app store kind of thing. Yeah, but it's just the statically compiled library, so it gets compiled down um, as part of the process when you you compile it. It looks at the pod and just grabs the the piece that it needs, and it's still included in there, but. For right. source control, it's much cleaner, and it's it's nice on the Objective C side too because the linking to static libraries can be kind of a pain in the neck going through the build settings and setting all these different flags and making sure that everything's set up right just to get it running, and then you still have to include make sure that those libraries are being included inside that target, and it's 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 a bit of setup to get it working, but CocoaPod simplifies it by building a second uh building its own library so you actually have like a pod library that gets included once into your project and then that library is what's including all of the stuff that you're bringing in Hmm. externally so it's one point of entry for all the third-party code instead of having you know and so instead of your application having to link to you know any number of of libraries it's just linking to the pod library and the pod library is linking to all the other stuff hmm. which is kind of nice nice 
Cool. So if um, someone wanted to get in touch with you guys, what's a good way to do that? Are you both on Twitter by any chance? I am. I, I seldomly tweet, but uh, <laughs> I would definitely respond to any tweets that came at me. Okay. And, and uh, I'm at Halogen and Toast. Halogen and Toast. Like yeah. the light fixture? Yeah. And the like breakfast food? It's, it's just one L. For some reason, uh, a lot of people put two L's in there, but it's Halogen and Toast. Okay. And you, Gordon? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at at G Fontenot, F-O-N-T-E-N-O-T. It's just first initial, last name. Got it. Cool. I think that actually just about wraps things up, so thanks very much for coming by, guys. Yeah, no yeah. problem. Appreciate thanks. it. Again, if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can find them at thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 29. It's not a restful route, I'm terribly afraid. <laughs> uh, today's podcast was recorded by Shauna Quintal, edited by Edward Lovell, and produced by Chad Pytel, who is responsible for that non-rest URL. Thanks for listening. Thank you.